and welcome to Spawn, the common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase. And I'm Liz Gumbiner. We're the founders of CoolMomPicks.com. And today, we're going to be talking about what I think we can safely say, Kristen, is the biggest story worldwide right now, vaccines. Most specifically, the COVID-19 vaccines, what to expect, how it impacts kids, and answers to some of our listeners' questions and concerns from a terrific expert who knows all about this. We're really excited to jump in with her on our topic right after this. This episode of Spawn is brought to you by Life360, the family safety membership that offers comprehensive, simple-to-use safety features for life at home, online, and on the road, all through one app. As we head into winter, protect your drivers and passengers with 24-7 roadside assistance and crash detection with emergency dispatch. And Life360's advanced location safety features allow you to stay connected throughout the day without sending a single text. Life360 is super easy to use and costs just a few dollars a month. Start protecting your family today and try it for free. All plans have a built-in seven-day free trial, including their best value gold membership plan. Visit life360.com slash parenting. That's life360.com slash parenting. So we are very happy to be talking about COVID-19, vaccinations, and children's health with Dr. Perry Class. And you're saying, yeah, I know that name. And you do. You do know that name. She's a medical journalist, pediatrician, and educator, currently a professor of journalism and pediatrics at New York University and co-director of NYU Florence, which is why she is joining us now from Italy. Perry writes a weekly column, The Checkup, for the New York Times Science section. She attended Harvard Medical School and completed her residency in pediatrics at Children's Hospital Boston and has written extensively about medicine, children, literacy, and knitting. I love yeah, it. I know. She's multifaceted. <laughs> her newest book is called A Good Time to Be Born, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future. And it's an account of how victories over infant and child mortality have really changed the world. Beyond her column in the New York Times, her medical journalism has appeared all over the place. The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, New England Journal of Medicine. She also happens to be the National Medical Director of Reach Out and Read, which, uh, God, I'd love to do another topic about that sometime, Kristen. It's a mm. national program promoting early literacy through pediatric primary care, and she's received tons of awards for her work as a pediatrician and educator, including the 2007 AAP Education Award and a lot more. We are so happy she's joining us today to talk about such an important topic. We're, we're so lucky to have her, and welcome, Perry. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy you can make it, especially because what time is it for you? It's late. <laughs> oh, it's just a few hours later. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're jealous about the food. Yeah, the food is This is safe. true. <laughs> the food, the wine, the gelato. I think the list could go on, right, Liz? <laughs> We're missing travel lately. I should tell you, though, that we are pretty much in lockdown. Yeah, I was going to ask you right off, like, how are things over there? Well, they're better than they were, but that's because we're, we've really been in lockdown. I mean, all kinds of restrictions. People can't travel from one region to another. Um, stores have just reopened in this area after having been almost all closed. So there's a, a lot of rules, and, and the general request is pretty much stay close to home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, as someone in New 
New York City. I get it 100%. We've barely left the house, <laughs> so I yep. understand. Mm. But listen, let's start out with something positive, which is vaccines are coming. And yep. I found myself really emotional this week watching them ship out on Monday. Like I said to someone that I didn't think I'd ever burst into tears at the sight of a FedEx truck or someone signing for a package. Yeah. And I know there's like this viral video going around of Boston healthcare workers dancing yep. on their hospital roof in celebration. So a lot of emotions. And I'd just love to know how it hit you on a personal level. In exactly that way, I felt so excited, so, uh, so happy in a way that I don't think I've been happy for quite a while. And I just want to say vaccines are, they're a tribute to how clever we are mm -hmm. as human beings. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. something we've figured out how to do in which we take the remarkable resources of our bodies and we, we turn them on and pediatricians love vaccines. That's not going to surprise you. And I think, I think we love them because it goes so deep with us. The idea that if you possibly can, you want to prevent children from getting sick. You don't want to treat them. You don't want miracle drugs, which make them better. You just don't want them to ever get mm. sick. Yes, absolutely. I had a sister who passed away from spinal meningitis and I actually did an interview a long time ago with Paul Offit, who's at CHOP, mm -hmm. and, uh, he, you know, the norovirus vaccine, but also the Hib, which I believe would have prevented my sister's death that was back in 1980. So I have very strong feelings about vaccines from a different perspective, from a parenting perspective, because I'm not a pediatrician. Last time I checked, I, I did go to a lot of school, but I came out with a music degree, <laughs> not a medical background. <laughs> Although... To a certain extent, we all know that the experience of being a parent takes you through some of the training that you go through as a pediatrician. There are certain things, I think, that you learn as a parent in certain areas where we all overlap. Well, that's nice to hear, actually, because I have four kids and there are some days where I'm like, okay, yeah that's strep. No, that's not strep. You know, like you, you just, you kind of can read your kids and, you know, I don't know about other people's children, but at least my own, I feel like I have a good sense of, you know, what's going on with them. But what's interesting is that as much as I am super pro vaccine, I did have some vaccine hesitancy with my first child. And, you know, we've been reading so much about this. We've been hearing so much about this, particularly, I think it's coming to light with this new vaccine. And I would love like to talk a little bit more about that. You know, it's generally seen more and more privileged white communities, but there have been a lot of misinformation campaigns towards black parents in particular, other groups, you know, that have grown in their mistrust towards the medical system. And I'm curious, you know, how do we identify misinformation campaigns? How can we make sure that we're getting the facts about vaccinations? And you can talk generally speaking, but I think, you know, so many people have their eye on the COVID-19 vaccine, of course. Well, I think that one of the lessons with this campaign to develop the vaccine and now to get the vaccine out there, one of the lessons is that people actually do want transparency and they actually want the details. They don't want just, you know, cut to the chase. Hey, I'm a doctor. It's safe. I mean, you can start there. But people are really interested in all of the details about how vaccines are tested, how they work, how we know what we know. And I think there's been a repeated lesson, which I think the medical profession is taking to heart. Pediatricians have certainly taken it to heart, which is, come on, 
tell us the details. People want to know what does it mean to say that it's an mRNA vaccine? What does it mean to say that it's a phase three trial? What do we know now? What are we going to know in a little while? And maybe that's partly these pandemic times in which all of a sudden some of the vocabulary of epidemiology and infectious disease is more familiar to us. But I think there's an obligation, um, first of all, for transparency, for lots of information, and second of all, for narrators, people who can connect with the communities that are asking the questions mm. to say, here is why I feel safe. Here is where I'm verifying my information. I love the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I think they've been doing a really good job of reaching out to find a whole variety of speakers and a whole variety of explainers to get this material across. And last thing I'm going to say is, so we need good trials sooner rather than later testing these vaccines in children. And we need people to feel that the information is being sought and that it's being communicated with transparency. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up that you like when parents ask questions, because I think that, you know, I've talked about this with my own parents, that they grew up thinking that you don't question authority, especially when it came to, you know, doctors and medical professionals, that you just respected them and you did what you were told. And I feel like now, in part, probably because of the internet and so much access to information, but in part, I, I don't know, it just seems like parents are increasingly confident about being able to ask questions and knowing that they have a good pediatrician who is willing to answer those questions. I also think that one of the things that happens when you choose the pediatrician who is right for you is you find someone whose manner, whose style of explaining, and maybe also where that person falls on the spectrum of you know, giving advice, explaining um, authority, whatever works for you. I mean, that was certainly true for me with my own kids. I wanted a pediatrician who had been doing this a lot longer than I had, mm. because at a certain point, if as if I had forgotten I was a pediatrician and I was, you know, a parent flipping out, I wanted a pediatrician who could sort of look me in the eye and say, I suppose that's possible, but in 30 years, I've never seen it. And <laughs> You know, I needed that sometimes. That makes so much sense. You know, I want to talk more about finding the truth and being able to trust it. And I know that we've seen evidence of this in vaccinations across the board, from the flu vaccine to chickenpox, and now we've got COVID-19. And certainly there are a lot of concerns coming out about this vaccine in particular. We've seen everything. I mean, there are some tweets out there. They're yes. funny. I have to admit, like, there was one tweet that I saw that was basically like, no, Bill Gates is not injecting you with microchips, but everyone is going to get the new U2 album. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, of course, people aren't aware the dig against Apple when we all got the YouTube album on our new iPhone. So, you know, there's that. And then there's also this idea that I'm hearing from friends that I'm surprised to be hearing this from, right? That government has forced it to be produced. It's too fast. We don't know what's going to happen. So can you just sort of give us some broad strokes in terms of how, why can we trust this, these vaccines that are coming out? What, what do we need to know in order to say, yes, this is a good decision. We need these. These are important. We need to get one. One of the things which I think is always interesting when you look at the way we get ourselves worked up around vaccines is that there can be this very interesting kind of bimodal situation in which on the one hand people are ready to say wait what what do you mean 
I don't qualify for a vaccine. And, and on the other hand, almost in the same breath, are you trying to put something over on me with this? So on the one hand, there's the, hey, everybody out of the way, I want to be first in line if this is going to make me safe. And then on the other hand, sometimes that same almost irrational reaction manifests itself as, as mistrust. So what I would like to say about this is that the scientific process here is really pretty good. And I mean, I think the clearest illustration you see of that is the nurses and the doctors and the people who live in this world who are rejoicing that this vaccine is here, who mm -hmm. are thrilled. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, nurses and doctors are tweeting to say, hey, I've been given my appointment. Hey, I'm going to get my vaccine. I started crying. So I think part of this is one of the things we should all have learned during even the worst part of this pandemic is the way that science works, is the amount of information that's out there and the number of really smart people going over it and over it. These vaccines, we're all hoping that this technology that allowed the development of these vaccines faster than vaccines have been able to be developed in the past is actually going to set us up in the future for more specific, more targeted, safer vaccines than we've been able to make before. In fact, I'm seeing people suggesting that it's time to go back and look at some of the diseases that we've been able to vaccinate against with the older technology, because this is a more specific and a safer technology. Mm to the disease without having to endure the disease. Mm. And vaccine technology has been about how specifically, how tiny a trigger can we use to do that? How can we turn on that immune response? And I think what we're seeing here is a new and incredibly hopeful technology for turning on that immune response and getting your body ready to defend itself in the most natural way, but without having to undergo the infection. I mean, you were talking about meningitis and I was thinking back when I trained as a resident in the 1980s. And this is one of the things that I was actually writing about those diseases, bacterial meningitis, Haemophilus influenza type B, Hib, um, Neisseria meningitides, they were so scary. People, doctors my age, pediatricians my age, remember lying awake at night terrified that one of the little kids in the emergency room with a high fever actually had one of those diseases. Yeah. Mm. And now, because we immunize against them, they're gone. Yeah. But I can't get a doctor who's 20 years younger than I am to be as scared as I am because they didn't lie awake and they didn't see kids suffer mm -hmm. with those those infections. Mm -hmm. I think even hearing your enthusiasm about it is really helpful mm -hmm. because it's as far as I know, you're not like on the board of Pfizer. You're not <laughs> invested in this personally. You're just you're invested as a medical practitioner and someone who cares about children. And I loved your description that we should look to the enthusiasm of other medical professionals as a good indicator that this is safe. And it reminds me of how, Kristen, we've talked about this before, that whenever I'm nervous on a bumpy flight, a flight that one day we may be able to go on again, <laughs> um, that I always look to the flight attendants. And if they don't look nervous, then I feel like I don't have to be nervous. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. really glad you brought that up. But I would like to know, 
I think for our, our listeners, like what are the side effects, if anything? I know you said we won't necessarily know about the 10-year plan, but is there anything we should be concerned about? So what we've heard so far about the side effects, I mean, generally, as we say, when you successfully immunize somebody, you turn on the immune system. And the turning on the immune system, turning on the immune response, it's, it's a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. So people sometimes think, oh, I got a dose of the disease. But what you really got was a dose of your body's defenses, your body revving right. up, your body kind of getting angry. So what we know so far about this is certainly some local side effects, sore arm, pain at the site of the injection, but also some of those effects like fatigue, like some fever, like some body aches, which are again evidence that your body is defending, that your immune system is turning on. Everything we've heard is that they've been temporary, that they've been mild and moderate. One of the things about the immune system is sometimes if you read because these these are vaccines with two doses sometimes if you rev up the immune system then when you get the second dose it responds even more strongly and again in the end that's good mm-hmm. but what you're experiencing is the power of your body's own reaction and your body's defenses you've probably talked about this before that is to say that one of the things that fever shows you is that your body is working is responding And we all know there are some small children who get really high fevers with every little infection. I had one like that. It was like, how come every time he has a little cold, he goes to um, 103, 104? Mm -hmm. But that tells you something about the power of the immune response, the power of the way your body is trying to fight this off. Yes. I mean, that's so important. I remember our pediatrician when my son, I had, well, I have four. So it's like all these vaccinations. I mean, I remember them quite well and that my son in particular would always get a fever, you know, and it would be worse the subsequent vaccinations. And I remember the doctor saying, that's good. We'll keep an eye on him, of course. But this means his his immune system is working. It is responding because I think there's so much misinformation regarding am I getting I'm getting the, the disease, I'm getting the infection. And that's why or why do I always get sick when I get a vaccination? And plus, and, we're all hypochondriacs yeah. right now anyway. Right. right exactly. Like every time anybody sniffles, it's like, oh, God, it's COVID. So I think we're kind of in that mindset. Well, it's, it's interesting because we're all hypochondriacs right now, but we're also unusually healthy, right? There are an awful lot of people out there who you'll 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 hear them saying, I haven't had a cold in 10 months. Yeah. Yes. I'm staying home. I'm wearing a mask. I'm washing my hands, all that stuff that we used to tell people to do, but none of us did. And so I think that made us more aware. But the other thing I just I have to say this as a as a, as a pediatrician is One of the reasons you hear so much love from pediatricians when we start talking about vaccines is I have never seen a child with polio. I know about it from books. I know about it from pictures. I've never seen a child with diphtheria. I have barely seen measles. That freedom from diseases which had the potential to hurt children and to leave them devastated and to kill them, right? Think about what that once meant for a parent whose child had fever or sore throat at night when there was diphtheria, when there was polio, Mm -hmm. when there was scarlet fever and you couldn't treat it. And so the idea of getting to a world where that's what you could say about COVID, isn't that, isn't that 
kind of a thrill. Oh, it's it's more than kind of a thrill. I mean, I, I this is very personal for me. I mean, I, I mentioned it before with my sister and the hip vaccine. This is super important. And I think the more information, and that's why we're so glad you're here, because I think the more information we can get out there that is, is from a source that people can relate to, right? I think that's the difficulty too, is like people are searching for, you know, the, the scientists and the people that they can relate to and say, okay, they're speaking my language. Because sometimes it's just difficult to decipher. Now, I, we really want to get to your book, but before that, there are just a couple things I want to clarify about distribution, right? So it's not approved for children yet. Nope. We are vaccinating our healthcare heroes first. We know that, you know, the vaccines are getting rolled out. Can you just talk about how are we going to be getting this? We're hearing that most people are probably going to have access to it in the spring. It's not something that we just like kind of wait in line at our local urgent care at this point. You know, can you talk a little bit about distribution and at what point you think we'll be seeing something that kids will be able to receive? So what we need for kids first and foremost is trials. And a couple of vaccines are now, in fact, going to start trials in in children, but though we don't have them yet. They're approved for people 16 uh, and over, I think. And Pfizer is enrolling children down to 12. And I think there are going to be others of the other vaccine companies are also going to do that. But we're going to want to go further down as well. We're going to want to be able to vaccinate school-age children eventually. So for children right now, we're still at the stage of gathering information. And parents are going to want that information. They're going to want safety data, and they're absolutely entitled to it. And everybody understands why you don't start by enrolling children, why you want to test a vaccine in adults and in young adults and in adolescents, and you'll work back. But we are going to need trials in children. So my understanding, you can probably find a more authoritative person to talk about this, but my understanding at this point is that distribution is going to be very specific to the state that you're in, maybe in some cases um, the hospital and the healthcare system, but that everybody is supposed to be following the same general guidelines. First of all, the CDC and the Committee on Immunization Guidelines, and then those have been reissued state by state. So I think at the moment we know that there's limited supply of the vaccine, and we know that, as you said, we're starting with two groups. We're starting with the people who are on the front lines who have the most exposure because of their healthcare work. And the, I've seen intensive care unit nurses, emergency room doctors, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists, the people who are exposed to the aerosolizing procedures. So There's that group. And then people have talked a lot about the adults in long-term care who are at such high risk. And then I think after that, they're talking about the different priorities, both for frontline workers and on the other side for people with underlying conditions who are at the highest risk. But I assume that just as with flu vaccine, where we'd like to get eventually is where there's enough vaccine for everybody and it's as easy and available as possible. Have you been emailed by your healthcare providers about the possibility of, you know, we'll let you know when it's available? Oh, yeah. 
My, I have never gotten more communication from our pediatric office in my life. We get so many emails from them, and it's so helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. they talk about which labs they're using and when yes. it's available. And they've been—I mean, I'm in New York City where no one has a car, but they say if you if you feel more comfortable getting COVID tests in a car, you can set up an appointment, and we'll come out to the curb and do it for you there. Like they've been amazing. And I, because I'm in New York State, I read Governor Cuomo's daily coronavirus updates every day. Like. I look forward to them every day. So I like I I cannot get enough information. That's how I process the world, as Kristen knows. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the other thing is you were asking where should you get your information. So I would start from the idea that the people who are taking care of your health, and maybe especially even more the people who are taking care of your child's health, they're probably people you trust. I mean, you're trusting them with your child. You're trusting them to um, make judgments when you're worried. So I would start there. Most of us have for our children, I would say even higher standards than we do for ourselves. I feel more honored when somebody trusts me with her child than I think I would necessarily feel about, you know, somebody taking me aside at a party and saying, do you know what this rash is on my arm? You know, (laughs) the people we trust with our children, we really trust them. And they're the place to start. They're the people to talk to. I'm talking about pediatrics. We all go into this field because we like seeing children grow up. We like seeing them be healthy. And I think we're sort of all on the same side. That, that's a very good reminder. We, yes. are, we are on the side of yes. let's live. <laughs> yes. So listen, this is a, a good segue to talk a little bit more about your book, A Good Time to Be Born, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future, which could not have come along at a better time. It just came out a few weeks ago. And the main point is basically that we're now living in a safer world, especially for children, where for the first time, as you mentioned, early death is the exception instead of the rule. But it's really not just a medical book, is it? I mean, the reviews are absolutely amazing. People are talking about how compelling it is and you weave in arts and culture and history. Can you just give us a bit of an overview? Sure. I mean, what I started with was this question that a hundred years ago at the beginning of the 20th century, when my grandmother was having her children in New York and Brooklyn, most families lost children. You had, you know, one in four, one in three children who didn't make it to a year. And then there were all those other diseases still around. So at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, which is not that long ago, you could not look at your children and expect that they would all live to grow up. And we now, after, say, the middle of the 20th century, the baby boomers and after, we basically do expect our children to live to grow up. And that is, uh, I would say it's our greatest, happiest achievement Mm. as a species. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not one campaign. It's not like, you know, let's defeat polio. We defeated polio. It's a whole set of scientific campaigns, but it's also all the parents who, for example, parents who lost a child tragically and said, I'm going to get a law passed so that booster seats are going to be required so that this doesn't happen to any other kid. It's about safety and safe sleeping positions and getting laws passed to make it necessary that medicines have childproof caps. But it's also about all the different vaccines and antibiotics. And when you add it all up, we move from a situation in which it's just 
something you have to accept as a parent, rich, poor, president of the United States, John D. Rockefeller, doesn't matter who you are because so many children don't make it, to a world that we have collectively made potentially much, much safer for the people we love most and for the people who are vulnerable, who depend on us. And I think that's kind of an extraordinary thing. And I think it's a good moment to think about the ways that we as human beings can take science and advocacy and public health and we can actually make it safer for everyone. When I was writing the book, things kept coming into my head, everything from Little Women and, you know, oh, yeah. what happens to Ben. Sorry, spoiler yeah. alert, by the way. There was, there was <laughs> oh, a gosh. big Twitter thread <laughs> last week that somebody talked about Beth and people were like, what? You've ruined it. And I thought, isn't there like a statute of limitations and spoilers like on 100 Seriously. <laughs> okay. So, Sorry to interrupt. I just heard Beth and I thought someone's going to yell at us. (laughs) But what I was going to say about that is that when Beth gets sick, I don't know if you remember, she gets sick taking care. There's a family of very poor German immigrants and um, the girls at the beginning of Little Women, and they give up their Christmas breakfast to this family because the children are hungry. And then eventually Beth gets sick because she catches scarlet fever from the baby. But there's just a kind of acceptance that, of course, babies get these terrible diseases and people get these terrible diseases. And when you look at even the classic children's literature of, um, you know, I sort of talk about Five Little Peppers and how they grew and Little Women and the level of acceptance that you have to live with for these really scary diseases, which, again, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm a pediatrician and I've never seen these. That was impressive for me. And it's hard. This again comes back to what you were sort of saying about meningitis. We don't get up every morning and say, think of the 10 terrible things that I'm never going to see. I'm so lucky. I'm so happy. But in fact, parents are spared a really long and terrible list of anxieties, which were just there for parents all through history, all through the 19th century and right up into the 20th. And in fact, the incredible, wonderful privilege as a parent and as a pediatrician to be able to look at children and think, um, let's make the right decisions, let's take good care of you, and then you're gonna live to grow up in pediatrics. We basically expect all of our patients to graduate. We expect them to outgrow us. Our goal is pretty much 100%. They should all grow up and then they should go on and have adult doctors. Um, Well, uh, that that didn't sound exactly right. They should have doctors who take care of adults. Hmm. I think it's books like that that help us as parents appreciate what we may take for granted, which is, you know, that our kids will grow up. You know, that leads me to ask you, I know there's always been kind of this anti-vaxxer movement, which has always been considered fairly fringe. But lately, there seems to be so much anti-science and anti-masker this anti movement. 
And I'm not sure if it's big or if it's just getting disproportionate coverage because it's so shocking to those of us who believe in science. Do you have any concerns that we're backsliding at all here? Or do you think this is just a blip and we're going to be okay? I think probably we are going to be okay. I think that in this and in many other ways, we're all still a little bit learning to adjust to the proliferation of information and how many different voices we're all now hearing. I think we need to get smarter about understanding who you listen to, who you trust, who you depend on. But I also think that people in science and medicine have needed to get smarter about communicating and not expecting that everyone's just going to take everything we say as gospel. I think that this whole pandemic experience, I hope, is going to leave us appreciative of science and epidemiology in a way that we haven't been before. That's not necessarily going to be everyone. But I would look to parents as a group that might be especially smart about this, looking at their children, thinking about how safe we want the world to be for our children. Um, But the communication skills are important and there's some some of the obligation is on journalism and some of the obligation is on medicine and some of the obligation is on science to communicate effectively. Well, thank you for this. And thank you for, t- I mean, I don't know how you have the time to do all of this. <laughs> you, you've got your column and you've got this new book out, but let, let's end on a, a super high note, which is... What is the first thing that you want to do when enough people have been vaccinated and the world feels safe again and, you know, the lockdown is no longer a lockdown? Just curious, what's what's at the top of your list? It's probably the same thing that's at the top of everybody's list. I want to be around the table with my children and the people I love most and crowded together mm. in an apartment with everybody and not worrying about people having traveled and not worrying about people being together. I look forward to traveling and being with the people that I love. That's really what I think we mostly want. Oof, that just, uh, I just teared up again. Me too. (laughs) That's what I want too. Me too. Just crowded together around a table, giving hugs. It's it's the small things. It's funny. It's not even, you know, I love to travel, but it, I agree. And I think Liz would too, right? Just being together with the people you care about. The only thing you're worried about is, you know, who's going to fight over the last dinner roll, you know? <laughs> may, we, may we be so lucky. So Perry, we can find you everywhere. You're on Twitter, Perry Class, K-L-A-S-S. Your website is perryclass.com. And of course, your book, A Good Time to Be Born, How Science and public health gave children a future and you're going to stick around for our cool picks of the week right absolutely okay perfect well now it's time for cool picks of the week cool picks of the week and perry you are our guest that means you get to go first and share your pick we can't wait to hear what this is well i was reading a book that i could not put down earlier today it was a thriller called the turn of the key by ruth ware and it was a modern version of the governess who goes to the strange deserted house to take care of children except this was a very modern smart house 
that was completely wired up, but it, I could not put it Ugh, down. Well, Ooh, I think we're I all just looked it up right more. now. Yeah. That looks fun. Yeah. And it just came out this year. Oh, perfect. And I know, Liz, you've been listening to a lot of books, and I actually have a book as well to share. It's like a bookish kind of podcast today. Mine is called World of Wonders, and it's by Amy Nezhuku Mutatil. Okay, can I just say... I looked that up on YouTube because that is a hard name to say. <laughs> she is a poet and an author. She is Indian and Filipina. And this book, oh, it's so beautiful. It is It is not a thriller. It is, it is the opposite of a thriller, but it's lovely. They're essays about her life in which she sort of weaves in life guidance and lessons through descriptions about different animals and plants, things that we may see every day just outside our window or things that are a little more rare or unique to a specific part of the country. It's a short book, which is another reason why I like it. I'm not going to lie. It's sweet. It's a lovely gift. And I think it's won some Book of the Year award, and that's how I saw it's it. It's won a lot of Books of the Year yes. award. In fact, it's it's you can't even get it in hardcover right now oh, in a really? lot of places. You, oh. But you can always download the audiobook. Okay, well, I, I have it. There, I have a bunch of... I actually grabbed a copy, and I feel like I'm going to pass it on to some lovely people in my life. But it's called World of Wonders. It's Amy Nezhuku Mutata. I'm just saying that twice because I'm very proud of myself that I was able to figure out her name. <laughs> All right, Liz, what about you? So I'm not recommending a book, but this is word nerdy. So I guess I'm getting more granular here. You know, Kristen, our friend Tina Roth-Eisenberg, who runs Tatley, the temporary tattoo yes, company. I do. And they happen to send wonderful emails. I love their emails. And they kind of do almost like their version of Cool Picks of the Week. And one of their links in there was to something, I cannot believe I've missed this, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, has a part of their website. So it's at merriam-webster.com slash time traveler, time-traveler. And what it is, is you can plug in any year and find out what words and phrases were used the first time during that year. Oh, fun! That's Isn't that super so fun. cool? Yes. That's really cool, and I'm afraid to know what 2020 is. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you, because I have it open right okay. now. So, coronavirus, right. COVID-19, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Very positive stuff. <laughs> Hopefully there'll be, there'll be more that's actually positive. But you know what I enjoyed finding? That the year I was born... Kristen, the very first use of the phrase, butt naked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Liz, it's your claim to fame. So it's, your... it's not it's not all uh, scientific, but it's it's really fun. It's just yeah. like one of those fun time sucks where you can just scroll and learn something and then feel really smart at a cocktail party when we can go back to them and say something like, oh, yeah, body shaming. That was first used in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know what? We'll link up everything that we spoke about today, articles and Perry's new book, and of course, all of our cool picks of the week over on our podcast page on coolmompicks.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Perry Kloss, and of course, thanks to our engineer, John Bowen. And hey, thanks to you, our listeners, for giving us a little bit of your time during what we know is a very busy season. But if we can ask one more thing of you, very small, promise, very small thing, leave us a five-star review and say some nice things. We'd really appreciate your time doing that. By doing that and subscribing, downloading our episodes, it really helps other listeners like you find us and it helps support what we do here. Yes, and you can also join us in our Spawn podcast community on Facebook where we chat about show topics and pretty much anything else you'd like to talk about, including very important controversial topics like... 
is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Hmm. Yeah, I clearly have the unpopular opinion in that thread that I think it's a Christmas-adjacent movie. What do you think, Kristen? Yeah, you know, I'm going to go with you on that, Liz. I'm sorry. I don't think it's an actual Christmas movie. I like Christmas-adjacent. I don't know. I'm agreeing with you. We tend to agree a lot, but definitely agreeing with you (laughs) on this one. Of course, you can ask anything you want to ask in that group, not just whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. We'd love to talk about everything with you, so join us, please. And thanks for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. This is Liz. Have a great day. Bye.